Take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. My dad used to say, well, actually, he said a lot of different things that have hung well in my head. And uh, one of the things that he said to us regularly, my brother and I, that is, as we grew up, was the problem with the obvious is that it's just too obvious. In other words, some things that are readily evident are so readily evident that people miss them. And we're going to talk about some things this morning that fit very well in that. And here's an example of that. Now, this is one of those anecdotal stories that preachers tell, which probably means that it didn't really happen this way, all right? So I'll just tell you that up front, but the story itself makes a pretty good point for us. There was a guy who uh, was out at the beach, as we often saw down in deep south Texas when I lived down there. Uh, guys would go down to the beach and they would t- put three or four fishing rods up, cast them out into the surf, and then they would go sit back under tents or, you know, shade of some kind and just kind of let the waves do their work of moving the bait back and forth. And so they just kind of hung out back there. And so that's what this guy was doing. He was just kind of taking it easy. Life was good. He was laying back and waiting for the fish to hit so that he could have something to eat later. While he was sitting there, he noticed a guy walking up the beach, and he was one of those guys that was dressed in the latest, most stylish designer beach outfits. Not really swimsuits, but, you know, the preppy-looking, beachy-looking stuff that, you know, is not supposed to get dirty or sweaty or anything like that. And the guy's walking with a very intentional kind of pace up the beach, and he sees the guy laying down up there with his rods out in the water, and he gets kind of bent about it. And so he walks over to the guy's back there fishing, and he says, seriously, you know that you can do better than this. And the guy says, what do you mean? He said, here you are. You're sitting back up here taking it easy, and there's fish to be had. And you have fishing poles out there, but there's fish to be had, and you're just taking it easy over here. You can do better than this. And the guy said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, let me tell you what. If you're wanting to catch fish, what you need to do is get out there and work those fishing poles so that you can catch fish. And the guy says, well, why? what's in it for me? Why would I want to do that? He said, because if you can catch enough fish, you don't, not only do you get to eat from that, but you can catch enough fish that way. If you really work it and you can sell those fish and you work it hard enough and over a period of time you can sell enough fish that you can buy a boat And the guy says, well, why would I want to buy a boat? What's in it for me? And wives are throwing elbows to husbands for some reason on that comment. And uh, he he says, what's in it for me? Why would I want to do that? And uh, the guy says to him, "Uh, if you get you a boat, you can go out there where the fish really are. And you can go in and you can catch a lot more fish if you have a boat. If you just work this hard enough and you can get you a boat, you go out there and you really catch them. And the guy said, okay, so let's say I do that. What's in it for me? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want a boat to go out and catch more fish? He said, because if you catch more fish, you can buy more boats. Obvious question is, well, why would I want to do that? He says, because if you buy enough boats, you get other people fishing for you, you're going to start bringing in tons of money. And before you know it, you'll have caught enough fish that those guys will do all the work for you and you can just kick back and take it easy in life. To which the guy said, that's what I was doing when you walked up. Right? The problem with the obvious is it's just too obvious 
sometimes. Let's take that and apply it to this warning statement for you. Be careful that you don't buy into the system that the world is trying to sell. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we come to a passage of scripture now that uh, I guess I would put it this way. The title of this message is, Get Your Money's Worth, and uh, I don't really mean that tied to the sermon today. I hope that you'll get your money's worth on that, but uh, I'm talking about in life. And the writer of Ecclesiastes helps us out with some of this, and he begins with a basic principle. Now, I'm going to tell you, the passage is from verse 8 all the way through uh, verse 20, but I'm not going to start at verse 8 this morning. As a matter of fact, this is going to be one of those times that I'm going to take you to a couple of other passages of Scripture. I don't do that very often, but I want to do it today to help you see just how pervasive this basic principle is for us as it relates to how we live our lives. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10, very succinctly lays out for us the basic principle that the preacher is giving us here. So in verse 10, he says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now I'm going to just stop right there. That's the basic principle. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't seem like a huge statement for us. But I want to I back up just a minute. And let me just kind of trigger your thinking in this line. Have you ever known anybody who gave evidence of a misplaced love in their life? In other words, they kind of focused their attention and fell in love. I don't even like that term. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, with somebody or something that was just not good for them. Now, we've seen that many, many times. I was a youth minister for a long time. Teresa and I are dealing with teenagers and with church people generally, which means parents with kids. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how many teenagers I've known, boys and girls, who have fallen in love with somebody who was just bad news. I think of one in particular. And this girl, raised in a good home, loved the Lord and all that stuff, but she so fixed her affections on this one guy, and he played her like a cheap fiddle. And she he was all she was emotional all the time, and he would build her up, and then he would smack her down, and sometimes physically smack her down. And it was just a horrible kind of a relationship. He was not good for her. Now, that's the picture that the preacher gives us, but he's not talking about people now. He's talking about money. Here's another principle for you. Be careful who you give your heart to or what you give your heart to. Notice again verse 10, what, Je- uh, excuse me, what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says, he who loves money. Now, I'm going to stop there. Let's talk about love for a second. Now, I was told this morning, I, somebody's looking out for me, I know that Valentine's Day is this week. What day is that? Thursday, okay. That was for you guys, okay? I knew what day it was because my wife's birthday is the next day. I never miss Valentine's Day. Now, sure enough, I said that, and sure enough, I'll miss it again. But um, that was mostly a public service announcement. Guys, you have till Thursday to come up with some good idea, all right? And we think about love, and we go to that gushy, sickening, emotional thing called love, right? Case in point. Now, you know, I told you last week that 
Teresa and I had to make a, a quick trip down to Edinburgh where we came from. A friend of mine uh, passed away and I had to do his funeral service. And um, So that was kind of a tough trip. But one of the things that helped for us was we were able to spend about four hours or so, five maybe, with our son and his brand new wife. Now they got married in November, okay? So what that means is, uh, by the way, the storm's hitting, I think. Uh, what that means is they've been married since November. It's sickening to be around them. Do you understand what I mean by that? Now they said, we want you to stay in our house. We've got an extra bedroom and we've got a bed in there for y'all. We would love for y'all to stay with us. And I told Teresa, hey, not a chance in the world I'm staying with a bunch of newlywed people. It ain't happening. All right. And sure enough, we went over to their house and we're sitting there visiting and, you know, they're making eyes at each other and, you know, I just want gags. Seriously, please. And she goes and sits on the arm of the chair where he's in a perfectly good couch, but no, she's got to sit next to him, you know, that kind of thing. That's the picture of love that we, especially at Valentine's Day, like to pass out and say, that's love. That whatever else that is, it is not the love of this verse. In verse 10, again, I'm going to read it for the third time. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The word love there is the exact same word that we find over in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. One of the fundamental, foundational passages of Scripture for even modern-day Hebrew people. In their worship experience, they go on a daily basis and quote the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love him with all of your heart, etc. You remember that? That word love there is not the Valentine's gushy, sickening kind of googly eyes love that Americans like to hold up as the standard. It is a legal term. It's a term that's used in contracts. When one person who is of a higher status makes a contract with somebody of a lower status, they say, I commit myself to love you, which means to be invested in this relationship so that you get the benefit of this contract. That's the word. And so it's not when he says this about money, he's not saying something that most of us could look at and say, well, I'm not, I, don't, I don't love money. I, I'm not crazy about money and I don't you know, sit around like Scrooge and count my coins all the time. So I'm off the hook with this verse. My suspicion, actually I think it's more than that, it's a conviction, is that the modern American is in love with money. And if they don't have it, they're in love with the idea of having it. Even if they have to take it from you who do have it. I think this is a verse for us in America, and especially in the American church these days, that we need to hear. Here's another thing my dad used to say relative to money. If you don't learn to control your money, your money will control you. Let me tell you something. There's wisdom in that. And I learned that almost immediately out of high school. I went to work for a company that was based out of Shreveport. is over in West Texas. And uh, over there, it was oil-filled stuff. And, uh, you know, so just booming. And the economy was blowing and going. And I went to work for this. And I worked in the back for a while. And then they moved me up to the inside sales and counter stuff and inventory control and those kind of things. And I worked with a guy. Now, see, I was 18, 19, 20 years old in that range. This guy was probably almost 30. He was well into the 
process of building his family. And I remember him always complaining that we didn't get paid enough money. Let me tell you something. We were getting paid a wicked amount of money in those days. For somebody my age to make kind of money, it was crazy. And I knew he was making good money too. He was always complaining about not having enough money. I remember vividly our paychecks were always delivered to us through an overnight express mail service uh, because they were done in Shreveport at the home office. They had to send them out there to us. And so on payday, everybody would wait at the front counter looking outside waiting for the truck to bring our checks. And I remember one day this guy that I'm talking about said this, and it floored me. I never really thought in these terms. He said this, I don't know why I'm so excited to get this check because it's already spent before I even get it. Now, since then, I've figured out that that's a majority of people in our world. They live in such a way that no matter how much money they make, it's not enough. That's the picture. He who loves is committed to, is tied to money, will not be satisfied with money. It might be interesting and helpful for us to kind of explore and kind of build this up a little bit better in our minds of what it means. So I want you to keep your place here, because we'll come back to this in just a moment. But I want you to go with me to the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew chapter 6, particularly, is where we are. And uh, your Bible might fall open to that because we spent so much time there not long after I got here preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us as his disciples what it looks like to be the kind of disciple he expects us to be. And he gets very practical in that. And in chapter 6 especially, I want to take you to chapter 6, verse 25. And in verse 25, chapter 6, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, etc. And I'm not going to finish reading that. I want you to get the first verse that I read, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And with that statement... Jesus goes to the heart of our love affair with money. We want more, no matter how much we have, we tend to want more because there's anxiety attached to having less or even the fear of having less. And so the American way is to stockpile. I think it's more than that. I think it's the human way, and that is to stockpile it because we find security there. Notice that verse 25 begins with the word, therefore. That's a summary kind of word. And when you come across a word like that in Scripture, you need to stop and you need to say, okay, now wait a minute. That's a conclusion statement, so let's go backwards and let's see what he is concluding. And so we go, well, by the way, I could take you to verse 33, which was in the little video clip that we showed you. Anybody know what verse 33 says? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, what things? Well, that's kind of where I stopped reading. All of these things will be added to you. What Jesus says in the conclusion of this section of the Sermon on the Mount is, you get your priorities right. Let me wash that and come back to the way I said it a minute ago. 
you give your heart to the right person, and that's him, and he'll take care of all of the needs of your life. In other words, there's nothing to be anxious about. Hold on, preacher. You don't realize that I just don't have much money in my account. I don't have to know how much money you have in your account because Jesus said, if you get your heart right, the proper affections in the proper places, he'll take care of you. So let's back up and see what he has to say about it. Now we go back to verse 19 where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the statement, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Drop down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And the conclusion is you cannot serve God and Now, the actual word is mammon, which involves money, but it really means stuff. Let's just stop for a second, and let's put these two together. Jesus is picking up on a theme from the Old Testament. It's part of the wisdom literature. It's part of what Solomon is teaching in the book of Ecclesiastes. He brings it forward, and he lets us see that we have to be careful what we give our heart to. So let's just try it on for size. Just look at your own life. In the context of this series that we're calling The Chase, how much of your energy is spent chasing stuff, especially money? I think it's critical we understand Jesus is not saying don't plan for the future. He is not saying that. Jesus is not saying get rid of your savings account. Not saying that. Matter of fact, I would counsel you. I think he would counsel you. Uh, You need to have that. And you even should put money in it from time to time. Take care of your business. It's not about money and if you have any. It's not about how much you have. It's about what your heart is fixed on. And our world, and especially America, that's where I am and so that's what I know most about, is fixed on more. Doesn't matter how much I have, I gotta get some more. There's all kinds of problems that that attitude brings to us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is gonna get to some of that. Now, I'm not gonna take the time right now, but if I had the time, I would go with, uh, with you over to the book of 1 Timothy chapter three, uh, 6. Now, some of you spent some time in chapter 3 today. But in chapter 6, Paul's talking to this young preacher boy named Timothy. He's trying to give him some of the basic parameters on how to be a pastor and how to be in leadership in a church. And he comes to this discussion about being content. And the implication of what he says there is something that we've seen in our lifetime here. And that is when a minister gets off base when it comes to money and he starts doing it for the personal gain that he gets monetarily, then he's out of line. His heart is fixed in the wrong place. And Paul warns Timothy, don't do that. Don't allow that even in those who come after you. You don't have to look very far in our history. 
and see some of those high-profile televangelists who lived opulently. And I mean, you can flip on TV now, and I'm thinking, where did they get a gold chair? Man, I don't have a gold chair. I don't want a gold chair, just for the record, okay? I'll just spray paint one if I want one, all right? That's on cheap like that. But in that passage over there in 1 Timothy is one of the most used verses of Scripture by lost people that I'm, that I'm aware of. It's the one that says, well, I mean, I'm going to turn there and read it because I don't want to misquote it. It's in verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, you know when the world uses that, and even when some Christians use it, we misquote it. How do we misquote it? What do we say? The money is the root of all evil. That's not what this says, okay? So if you're sitting out there on a stack of money, you're okay, all right? It's not that you're evil. You might be, but it's not because you're sitting on a stack of money, all right? The deal is, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Let me give you a good example of that. I'll give you one name, and if you've watched the news at all over the last several years, it just brings all of this right straight into our face. Bernie Madoff. The love of money moves people to abuse people. By the way, back in Ecclesiastes 5, go there with me. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, there's a statement to that effect in verses 8 and 9. He's talking about political corruption. And essentially this, I'm going to read it in just a second, but I'm going to say this to you so that it kind of hangs there because some of the Hebrew translation is a little rocky here. Essentially what he's saying in verses 8 and 9 is that we should not be surprised when we see political corruption, when there's a host of people and they are stratified by bureaucracy. There is this level and he's getting all he can get and he knows that if he doesn't get all he can get, he's not going to get it. So he just does whatever he needs to. By the way, remember the days of the tax collectors in Jerusalem, I mean, in the first century and all. Uh, and our times with political stuff. And this level of bureaucratic official is being watched by the one above him who's in it for the same thing. So he's going to get all he can get and the one above him can get all he can get. It's a very negative, downer kind of of statement. So he says in verse 8, sorry, I was still in Matthew. He says in verse 8, if you see a province or in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher one, and there are yet even higher ones over them. So he says our political system and his political system was rampant with the abuse of people and it's tied to their hearts being fixed in the wrong place. In other words, I'm going to get mine and when you turn your head, I'm going to get yours. That's the picture. It's kind of the classic story of the playground bully. Remember the story of kids in lunch? Elementary school, it's lunchtime, and it doesn't matter what his mom put in his lunch, he wants what's in yours. And he's going to get it if he's bigger than you are. I think what we need to get from this whole thing thus far, what Jesus said, what Paul said to Timothy, what 
the preacher is saying to us here is this fundamental truth. We must keep money and stuff in the right place because when we get it in the wrong place, it definitively impacts our relationship with God, which by extension impacts our relationships with other people. So as I stop here for just a moment, the question that you have to deal with is, where's your heart today? Listen to what he says in support of his argument here. Second part of verse 10 through verse 17, he gives us several different examples of why it's crazy for us to pursue wealth as an end in itself. In our own pursuit, if money is the goal... It's craziness. Here's what he says. We pick up in verse 10, the second part. I'll just go ahead and read the first. But the second part is the key now. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. The pursuit of wealth is endless, is another way of saying what he's driving at here. You ever feel like when you wake up in the morning, you have to go to work? Well, maybe that in itself is a telling kind of a statement. You wake up in the morning and you have to go to work. You know, the reality is that this world runs on money. That's why my dad said you better learn to make peace with it because if you don't, then it's going to control you in your life. And so all of us, or most of us at least, wake up in the morning and we know we have to go to work. If we don't go to work, sooner or later those kids of yours are going to get hungry. And so you just know that. Or your banker will come knocking on your door. And you know that. And so that puts us into this approach to living where all that we do, our whole focus in life, is the drudgery of going to work so that we can get a paycheck that's already spent so we can pay off the stuff that we have that we even forgot why our credit card is so high because we bought stuff that's stuck in a closet somewhere to even remember what it was. It's the old picture of a hamster in a wheel. So many people in our day are stuck in a wheel and they get up every morning and they climb into the wheel and they just run and expend effort all day long with nothing really to show for it in the end. That's the second part of verse 10. Maybe it's a good thing for us to ask. Why are you working so hard? Well, part of the answer is because if I don't work hard, they won't let me keep my job. I can relate to that. I don't ever want it to be said of me or any of mine, they're just not going to work. You know, the Bible has something to say about people like that. You don't work, you don't eat. I love that at my house when I told my kids they had to get jobs. I thought my grocery bill was going to go down. Dadgummit, they learned how to work from their mama, I guess. How much is enough? Why do we work? When you get up in the morning, why do you go do that? I'm always amazed when I get on the road early in the morning. Now, my commute is about two minutes if I catch the light, right? Um, But some of you have to drive a long ways. Watch the faces of people around you while you're driving, in the mornings especially. They are not happy, most of them. Okay, You know why? Because they're going to work. 
And as they go, I, they, 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 they drive like maniacs. Now, we have law enforcement part of our church here. Uh, and, man, I pray for you guys all the time because I, I understand how dangerous that is. But I, I look around and I, <laughs> I watch people driving on their way. They drive like maniacs, and yet they're, they're killing themselves to get to a job that they hate. Makes no sense. But they have to. Because they got to get on that wheel. And like the hamster, they just got to put the energy out because sooner or later I got to get more. Verse 11 helps us. Another reason that he gives us that it's crazy for us to have our heart in the wrong place. Verse 11 says, when goods increase, in other words, when you start stockpiling this stuff, they increase who eat them. <laughs> you get the picture of that? This happened at my house. Okay? Um, when it was just me and Teresa, we were comfortable, and these kids started showing up. And one thing I learned about kids, like, right away was they love to eat. But they also like to spend my money, okay? You ever notice that, parents? Now, they don't realize that's it. It, it starts this way. When they're preschoolers, we can keep them at home. They just need a toy every once in a while, food every once in a while. You, know, you keep shoveling food at them. Basically, it's okay. Well, it was for me because I went to work, and she stayed home with the kids, But when they started getting in school, they started demanding stuff. Well, the schools did. You got to have certain kind of clothes to go to school. So we had to buy them clothes. And on top of that, they had to have school supplies. And so we had to buy school supplies. And I never had to do that before, not while I was an adult anyway. So I had to walk through that. Now, Teresa had been at home with the kids and was with home uh, until Lauren got in uh, in elementary school. And then Teresa went back to school, got a degree in psychology. That's she got extra credit because she lived with me. Um, and so when she got out of school, now our kids are in elementary school and junior high and high school. And their needs, their financial needs, just kept getting more all the time. So she got a job. And soon she gets a job. So more money's coming in. You know what happens? They need cheerleading outfits and basketball shoes and band instruments and food, food, lots of food by that time. That's the word picture that he gives us in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And listen to this. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? In other words, the only feast he gets, the only benefit he gets as the one who earns the money that pays for that stuff, he gets the satisfaction of seeing it in a pile before it flies out the window. In other words, it's meaningless. This is a good time for me to stop and remind you why we're doing this series at this time. I recognize when I got to this area relatively quickly that it was an upwardly mobile kind of community. And a lot of people in this community work really hard. I see that and I like that about us. But I also see so many of the people of our community are caught in that hamster wheel of just making more so that they can buy more so that somewhere, hopefully, they can find fulfillment and happiness in life. And it's about kids the reality is that your kids are going to grow up and they're going to move away. 
One of the reasons I tell young families, husbands and wife, you be sure that you date each other all the time that your kids are growing up because one of these days those kids are going to leave home and it's just going to be the two of you left and you're going to look at each other and go, oh my goodness, who are you? So you can't lose that. You remember why you got married in the first place. Don't pursue your children as the fulfillment of your life because they're going to break your heart at some point, maybe more than once. And don't pursue stuff, including money, for the sake of having it. Don't kill yourself in a job that the day after you die will carry on just like as if you'd never been there before. That's the nature of this world. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. What are you chasing? And today he says, in your chase, don't give your heart away to something that doesn't fulfill. Verse 11, the consumption keeps, us, keeps pace with the acquisition. And there are needy people involved. I was reminded of this recently with a friend of mine who's caught up in all kinds of discussions in their family. This is another place. Nobody around here. You wouldn't know this person if they were standing here with me. Caught up in stuff as a family because several people in the family are afraid they're not going to get theirs in the end. You see, the nature of pursuing stuff for the sake of stuff is that you start stepping on people to keep it or to get it. And verse 12 says you can't keep it anyway. Look what he says. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of the son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil just as he came so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? They asked a guy who was an associate of one of the millionaires of his day, one of the most wealthy men in American history. And they called him by name and they said, uh, so uh, when he died, uh, how much did he leave behind? And they were looking for a round dollar amount so they could see how much he was worth. How much did he leave behind? And his confidant, his business partner, very wisely said, he left behind all of it. That's the nature of life. It makes no sense to sell your soul for money. Now, most of us wouldn't do that. So let me put it down on the level where some people would. It makes no sense to sell your family for money. It makes no sense to sell your marriage for money. It makes no sense to put your heart in the wrong place. But we live in a world, now I'm back to where I started, 
The problem with the obvious is it's just too obvious. So many people miss it. We live in a world whose value system says, if you have more of this stuff, you're more important. God says, you're important. You matter to me. And if you'll just trust me, now I'm back in Matthew, if you'll just trust me, I'll make sure you have everything you need in life. Now that's not the same as everything you want in life. That's a whole other sermon. We'll get there. So the question for you today is, where's your heart? What are you pursuing when it comes to money and stuff and career? And why are you doing it? I'd be wrong if I didn't get you to the back end of this, verses 18 through 20. Here's the better deal that he offers to us. This is one of those times that the writer of Ecclesiastes pulls back the cover just a little bit for us, and he lets us see the answer to these meaningless things that he's been talking about. He says, Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. In other words, he says, instead of getting on that hamster wheel, he says, just enjoy the life that God has given you. That's a huge statement for him because we've been working our way through this, and he's been telling us time after time that pursuit ends in vanity. He pulls back the covers a little bit. He lets us see. Stay in the game because there's a truth here that will set you free. Enjoy where you are. That was one of the things. Back to the kids thing for just a second. It's really not a sermon on parenting, but it fits pretty well. One of the things that somebody told me and Teresa when we first started having our children was, you need to enjoy the time with them because, boy, before you know it, it'll be over. Some of those times couldn't get over fast enough for me. That diaper thing, that's way overrated, okay? But, you know, over the last couple of days, week or so, Teresa and I have had a chance to go sit back, sit down with our son. He was a holy terror when he was two, three, four years old. I mean, it's a wonder he lived through those days. And sit down and listen to him now and talk how God has brought him along. It's an amazing thing. And I look back and I go, where did the time go? Enjoy your kids for where they are. Because tomorrow they'll be different. And the day after that, they'll be different again. Don't get so locked up in making money or making a career that you lose sight of what's most important. a great thing what the preacher is doing for us here. If we'll listen to what he's teaching us in these handful of chapters, he'll save us a lot of heartache in life. So where's your heart today? What are you chasing? Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for us to see these truths sometimes. We get so down in the weeds of working and trying to make a living and trying to make a way that we just kind of naturally gravitate towards pushing you off of the throne and putting a bank account or a retirement account or a hobby account on that throne. We end up serving a dream instead of serving you. 
We ask for forgiveness for that. Pray that you would help us to see well the realities of our life, not as the world would say to us, but as you would say to us. Give us, please, give us what we need to get this right. For those of us who are blessed financially and otherwise, help us to be good stewards of that. That we would not allow those things to uh, cause us to retreat, to build walls and to protect at any cost. Help us to see people, to see our responsibility to them because of you. Father, help us to get our hearts right, to love you with all that we are. Right now, Father, I pray as you're working in the lives of your people, whatever point of need you're working with them, they know very vividly right now that you're speaking to them. I pray that you would help them to know that they need to act on that. That the grace of this moment is that you speak to them and you give them that call that says, come out, be separate from the world. Whether it's a salvation need or a repentance need, or a restructuring of how they live their life need. Whatever it is, Father, right now, give them the grace to act on that. By the way, if you're here and God's talking to you like that, this invitation time is for you, that you act on it. You step out and do what God is pushing you to do at this time. Let's stand together as we sing.